Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of 2022. Joining me in the virtual studio this week are three of my colleagues, Melanie Marin Pell, AJC's Chief Field Operations Officer, Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, and Rebecca Klein, AJC's Director of National Outreach. Ladies, over to you. On January 6, 2021, supporters of President Donald Trump gathered at the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. to protest the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The protests turned violent, with rioters storming the Capitol, disrupting the joint session of Congress assembled to count electoral votes that would formalize President-elect Joe Biden's victory. America and the world watched in disbelief as the Capitol complex went into lockdown. Lawmakers, including Vice President Mike Pence, and their staff were evacuated or hidden. Law enforcement officials were attacked and rioters roamed the halls and offices of Congress, vandalizing, stealing, and destroying property along the way. Five people died during or shortly following the event. Hundreds were injured, including 138 police officers. It was a shocking day and the reverberations of the insurrection and the beliefs that motivated many of the rioters that day have continued. Among the rioters were members of an array of white supremacist groups such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, followers of the QAnon movement, and symbols and signs of anti-Jewish hate, including the notorious Camp Auschwitz shirt worn by one of the rioters, were seen. Holly, what can you tell us about how anti-Semitism fits into the ideologies of some of the groups I just mentioned? Thank you, Melanie. We've found that anti-Semitism, whether it was ignorant, latent, or openly expressed, as in the case of uh, the Nazi flag, of the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, really was expressed as a persistent force behind the insurrection. And in some of the groups, again, the anti-Semitism was open. There was the National Socialist Club, the NSC 131. There was the New Jersey European Heritage Association, someone waving that Nazi flag, really openly expressing that the white race is superior and must be preserved and continue to be in charge. And they see Jews as enemy number one in their worldview. However, on the other hand, some of the anti-Semitism, you know, wasn't as openly expressed. And I think many people might have even been ignorant of the anti-Semitism within their own movement they were supporting. And that's something we saw with QAnon, for instance. So many followers, supporters of QAnon aren't aware of the anti-Semitic roots of this conspiracy. And again, as a, as a refresher, you know, QAnon is a, a loosely organized far-right network of people who believe that the world's being controlled by, by powerful globalists, many Jews. It's a secret kind of cabal of pedophiles. George Soros is often mentioned in this it's also as the Rothschild uh, family. And this group, they kind of latched on to this, the Save the Children movement and, you know, blaming, again, quote unquote, powerful Jewish globalists for, um, you know, doing inappropriate things to children and the need to rescue children. And that really does harken back to the ancient, you know, the blood libel against Jews. And it's, it's anti-Semitic in root, again, blaming Jews for trying to control the world. You know, that has a long history. And so that is something that was kind of underneath some of the things that we saw at the insurrection. But one final point I want to mention that I think is really important here is research is showing that the insurrection, many of the individuals were actually not tied to the groups that we just mentioned. That, that's what we recognize, but many people that were there 
weren't anti-Semites. They weren't connected to any of these groups. Uh, and I think that's the scary part, that they were joining with anti-Semites to undermine our government. And that's something we need to unpack and better understand. One of the other theories that we hear, again, not from everyone, as you just noted, importantly, that not everyone who was um, part of this protest is affiliated with one of these groups. But we saw also in Charlottesville, the other notorious incident where we saw some of these same groups that we just discussed and mentioned marching and chanting things like, Jews will not replace us. And that is a reference to what is described or called the replacement theory. That was one manifestation of it. Can you just explain a little bit about what replacement theory is and what those adherents to this theory are hoping to achieve? Right. So replacement theory or great replacement is a conspiracy that believes that the white race is under threat of extinction. An extreme actually version of this theory is something called white genocide theory, which again, saying that there's an intentional effort, once again, led by Jews to promote mass or non-white immigration, intermarriage, other efforts that would lead to the extinction of whites in America, but also in, in Europe, for instance. There's a lot of transnational ties between these groups. And so that was the sentiment that we really saw promoted in 2017 at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville when they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. They will not take over. They will not replace the white race. But this great replacement had these undercurrents for terrorist attacks. We saw this in 2018 at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. That was the motivation behind the murderers thinking there. In 2019 in El Paso, the same idea, the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. This is the same piece. And the conspiracy really blames Jews again for being the masterminds behind, and again, this is where the anti-Semitism comes in, being the masterminds behind bringing in immigrants, you know, to our country to kind of, quote unquote, unseat the white race from the proverbial throne. But one thing I think that's important to note, some of it's obvious. When we saw what happened in Pittsburgh, even Charlottesville, the anti-Semitism was obvious. The great replacement theory was obvious. I think we need to be vigilant when it's hidden under things. And that's something we saw, for instance, with Tucker Carlson using the Great Replacement Theory under the guise of voting rights last April. And we spoke out against it, others spoke out against it, but it wasn't as noticed, I think, by more people in the public. And that's where we need to make these connections, saying it's not okay to invoke these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in any aspect of our engagement. Thank you. And you just described what these groups seek to achieve. When we look at January 6th, What's your assessment of what they were marching for? Many of these people would refer to themselves as patriots, and yet many of us saw this as a real assault on democracy and what we understand, you know, the underpinnings of American society to be premised upon. How do we assess what they were trying to achieve? Were they trying to change the outcome of an election, or is this something deeper about changing the fundamental basis of how our society functions and how our democracy functions? I think the objectives varied. I, I do think many of them saw themselves as patriots. Many of them thought of themselves something part of something bigger, really did see the election as, as stolen, were, were, were misinformed, really did believe a lot of mis and disinformation that was out there. But overall, the objectives, you know, did vary. We know that some of the extreme white supremacists far right, you know, really were, again, actively campaigning against this white genocide. And others really did not know some of these more nefarious roots to what they were part of and, and really did see Donald Trump as their president and were really trying to, you know, somehow save democracy, the exact opposite of what they were actually doing, Right. But, you know, even those who aren't overtly anti-Semitic, I think this is where the slippery slope comes in, because this is what we saw happen uh, on January 6th of last year, was diverse groups, you know, united on social media, 
cross-pollinate. The anti-vax movement against COVID vaccinations and mandates, they're being connected algorithmically with far-right groups, with misogynists, with anti-Semites, with little things that people have in common are then being connected really often online um, and, and uniting them in a way that they've never been united before and, and coming together and just, you know, spilling out into real life, which is what we saw. And I think overall, when you ask about what they're trying to achieve, Melanie, you know, just but in broad, again, it's not a monolith group, but in a broad brushstroke, they're trying to conserve or defend what they see as a quote unquote, you know, true America, which they see as white, as Christian, as, you know, going back to, you know, whatever roots or myths one might have with the founding of our nation to push back against the liberal or social changes that they see as causing harm. Um, and and it's some of the progressive causes, which they see as going against traditional, you know, again, quote unquote, Christian values. And so they see themselves as defenders, actually, of, of you know, kind of what once was um, trying to conserve a different worldview. And we have to, you know, be able to show that that's not the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask you one more question before turning to Rebecca. And that is, we know that so much of the ideology and the information or misinformation that many people around the country are absorbing and consuming is really grounded in so much conspiracy theory unfounded ideas and just genuine conspiracy. And we know that anti-Semitism at its core is really conspiracy theory or a series of conspiracy theories about Jews. So we know that it was the repeated hammering of conspiracy theories about Jews that when combined with a really diabolical vision and access to a very you know strong military under Hitler and the Nazis that ultimately culminated in the systematic murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. So my point is that conspiracy theories can, if taken to their conclusion, can be extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily dangerous. And we know that conspiracy theories about Jews have never really gone away, and we now see them finding more purchase in more visible and public ways. So. I guess the question is, should we as Jews, should Jews be worried? As citizens of America, Jews and and non-Jews, you know, we should all be worried, but not worried in the sense that we're fearful, we're changing our behavior, letting the haters rejoice, right, in our fear, but worried in the sense of heightened alert, you know, being vigilant, being active, not just sitting back and watching what's unfolding, thinking, it can't get worse. You know, this is as bad it's going to get because we have those historical patterns, right? But being active and continuing to build relationships with others, that's something that we prioritize at AJC, who share a liberal, and again, small L, but a liberal vision of America, of American pluralism and democracy. And you mentioned the Holocaust, uh, Melanie, and I think, you know, those who have studied how could the Holocaust happen, how could a modern society go along with, be bystanders to the greatest atrocity of our time, the studies show, you know, with behavioral science, behavioral studies, that, you know, human behavior really does want to conform. So while there was real hatred in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, there was a vigorous propaganda cycle propagated by Goebbels and, and Adolf Hitler. There was some ignorance, but the majority of people just wanted to fit in. And, you know, we know that people will choose wrong answers in tests, even though they know the right answer, if the majority of people have also chosen that wrong answer. And so this natural tendency for us to want to fit in, to be part of the crowd, can be used for good or for evil. And we've seen it in the Holocaust, used for evil. 
It's such an important message. And one, Rebecca, that I know that we at AJC raise when we engage with elected officials. So Rebecca, in your work with elected officials, many of whom are at the state and local levels, what are we learning about how conspiracy and misinformation and disinformation are impacting the levers of government? Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it is the job of our elected officials to reassure their citizens, the sanctity, stability, legality of our election process. The way we do this is to be extremely open and transparent with Americans about how the process works, the many checks and balances and mechanisms in place to assure we have these free and credible and fair elections. You know, all of these checks and balances have been in place forever since we created our election system. Voter fraud is extraordinarily rare. These are real outliers on both sides, on either side of the political spectrum. And, you know, of course, any amount of error is a possibility in an election system. And now I think it's up to our elected officials. They have to really reassure voters. They have to reassure their constituents about what the process really looks like and be extremely transparent about it so that we can all feel confident in the process. These conspiracies make it really hard. This misinformation and disinformation makes it really hard because we now have to take that step, that extra step to explain the process to everybody and really show them where the steps are in place to keep everything legal and above board and that we can all really trust in the process. You know, I've been doing elections for a really long time. And I'll tell you, there are scores of lawyers involved and they're around on election day and there are people that are checking the polls and there are people out there, you know, there are a lot of uh, nonpartisan volunteers who are involved in the election process who take their work very, very seriously. And I think all of these things, if you are involved in the election process, you know that that's in place. Um, and so it's, it's, it's incredulous to me to think, how could there possibly be any sort of, you know, fraud involved, any sort of conspiracy behind it? But I think now the elected officials need to step up and are across the board and really sharing information and showing where to find the actual information. And I think that's also part of this is there's so much information online that comes from various sources and many of them look like news sources. They look like they're coming from journalists, but really they're opinion pieces or opinion sites. And so being able to be in front of this, relying on our secretaries of state to really get the information out there about how the election process works, where to get the right information, And we're seeing that. We're seeing that across the board. And so, you know, I feel really good about the work that we're doing, that they're doing. It's just an extra step on top of the busy work that all of our election officials have to do. It's really also reassuring the American people about the process. I think that's such a good point. It's so important. And you noted that we know that millions of people are digesting information that is not factual. It may, as you said, appear to be factual or appear to be news but is in fact opinion or simply not even opinion, just (laughs) fiction. But we know it's out there, it's very accessible, and it is fomenting what is this increasing mistrust in government, mistrust in what we, you know, think of as the mainstream media. And we see how easy it is for people to simply reject objective fact and truth and believe their own alternative facts. And we know that A democracy, a healthy democracy, relies on some semblance of trust in the system. And there are some indicators that we are headed in the wrong direction. So sort of the same question that I put to Holly, should we be worried about cracks in the foundation of democracy? You've spoken a little bit about controls and checks and balances on elections, which is an important, you know, critical piece of democracy. But what are you seeing and what are you hearing from elected officials? Are they sounding any alarm bells? And if so, what can we do to address that? So, you know, I'm not worried. I think that what is happening right now is concerning from a messaging perspective. 
But I believe that the state of democracy in America is strong and our election process is really secure. And I think what it's really about is getting the information out there to people who need it and showing them where to find it. You know, where this connects to our work, and Holly touched on this earlier, is a lot of these theories, a lot of these conspiracies have anti-Semitic roots, right? And so some of these voting fraud conspiracies involve, you know, George Soros and owning the voting machines, which a lot of people think is just a partisan attack against Democrats, but really actually is an anti-Semitic attack. And, you know, we need to inform people about that. And when you tell people that that's actually the the roots there are anti-Semitic, and that's not okay. That's not an okay attack. It's not just a partisan attack. You're really attacking the Jewish community. You're attacking your constituents, essentially. In terms of the foundation of our democracy, again, you know, I think it's good to challenge. It's good to raise questions and make sure that we are putting the right things in place, right? There are a bunch of different bills that are talking about social media and how to regulate it and how to be thoughtful about it and the different algorithms that are being used. And that's really important. It's a really important question. And that comes up against you know, freedoms of speech. And those these are really important debates to be had. And I believe in our government to have these really, really important debates and come out with the right answers. I believe in our elected officials that on both sides of the aisle, we're going to figure this out and we're going to change with technology and we're going to come out of this, right? I think this is a challenging time because the technology has changed really, really fast. And people consume information so much differently than they used to, right? 20 years ago, the way we got news and the way we got it 10 years ago, the way we got it five years ago, the way we get it today, it's a completely different ballgame. I can't even tell you the number of people in my life, smart people I know, who completely consume all of their news media from social media, right? They do not get it from news sources. They do not get it from a newspaper or from television. They're completely getting it from Facebook and Twitter. And so we need to be very mindful as a society about how to best move forward in this scenario that we find ourselves, where we need to manage that how news is being consumed, how it is being relayed. And I think it's a really important piece. Holly, I, I want to turn back to the idea of how anti-Semitism sometimes manifests in anti-government or anti-democracy ways. And One other way we've seen it recently is in the time of this pandemic, we have seen this rise in Nazi and Holocaust comparisons where people compare government policies or mandates regarding masks or vaccines to policies of the Nazis and describe themselves or make analogies to themselves as being victims like Jews were during World War II, as if they're facing something similar to what Jews faced by being asked to wear a mask. But we see this Holocaust distortion. I'm just wondering if you could comment on why that is dangerous and why it is so crucial that we continue to call out how inappropriate and unacceptable these Holocaust comparisons are. Thank you, Melanie. I'll speak to what we've been seeing with Holocaust comparisons, and then I'll circle back to anti-Semitism specifically threatening the fundamentals of our democracy. So as you rightly mentioned, this past year, two years really since the pandemic started, there's not only been a rise in anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism online from Zoom bombing to blaming Jews for uh, creating COVID to profiting off the vaccine, like, you know, horrific anti-Semitism, but also Holocaust distortion. And we believe that Holocaust distortion can be a form of anti-Semitism, even if that's not the intent of the person engaging in this Holocaust distortion. And and what do I mean by Holocaust distortion? 
you know, altering or changing or lessening what actually happened during the Holocaust. And so when people say that what their government or their governor is mandating with masks or that they're needing to have a vaccine and they're saying we are like Jews in the Holocaust and they're wearing yellow stars in their city council meeting, what they might not be aware of is that they're lessening what Hitler did. They're lessening what happened to to Jews, the murder of six million Jews in the Holocaust. They are attacking Jewish history. And that's not okay. And that's why we have to speak out about it and say, this is inappropriate. You know, this can't be done. And we actually have seen people apologize there. There's still people that are, you know, doubling down, but we have seen many people who've engaged in this really not knowing, you know, saying that they were ignorant of what was happening and, and apologizing. And so we need to continue to do that. And we ask our listeners to do that, to say something when, when this happens and explain why this is problematic. Just to circle back quickly, anti-Semitism we've seen and how it affects our democracy especially with what's happening you know, right now. I use Alexis de Tocqueville's work a lot in my work with combating anti-Semitism because I think it's so relevant, his, you know, on democracy in America. And something that he actually noted, something that he warned about was that there could be a growing tyranny within a majority if they felt that freedom of expression could no longer happen. Whatever like the majority was saying, like there couldn't be room for others to think differently, for others to think kind of outside. And I think that's what's so important in our democracy, this freedom of expression. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is really kind of a majority monopoly of thinking on the right and on the left, these like two separate pillars that have almost, they're so loud that they've removed kind of the freedom from the middle. And I think if we are unwilling as Americans to acknowledge the legitimacy of points of view other than our own, and then when the outlet is violence, which we have seen violence um, mostly on the far right, most of the violence has been on the far right, but we've seen political violence on the far left as well in the past years, that actually can lead to the destruction of democratic society. And one person I want to reference actually is this, there's scholars in Jewish history that say this, but I, I want to mention something that Daryl Horn actually recently said, because we know that since ancient times, wherever Jews have lived, right, they reflect the level of tolerance in a culture. And Daryl Horn has said that Jews actually represented the frightening prospect of freedom where they lived. And societies that accept Jews flourish, societies that reject Jews have withered you know, kind of fading into history's night is how she quoted it. And anti-Semitism is rooted in human failure. And if our society can't protect Jews, and if we are allowing anti-Semitism to fester, even if under the surface, you know, that doesn't bode well for our democracy. Thank you. And given all of this, there's a lot that we have discussed today that is quite heavy. I wonder, Holly, let's start with you. What gives you hope and what can our listeners do to help? Thank you, Melanie. So, a year ago, our nation faced a violent insurrection. I live actually on Capitol Hill in D.C., and so it really hit close to home this, this one-year anniversary. But at the time, a year ago, there had not yet been a peaceful transfer of power. I think we were wondering, you know, what was happening? What does this mean? And a year out, we can look back. There was a transfer of power. Our democracy, you know, is strong, as Rebecca rightly noted. That doesn't mean that we need to be less vigilant or less active. I do think, you know, the current state can be fragile if we just aren't active in the process. So a few reasons just for hope, just in this past Last year, we found that in our own studies at AJC, we put out a report in October that it was a state of anti-Semitism in America. And we found that Jews in America, even though there is rising anti-Semitism, Jews do feel safer than they did a year ago. Part of that was the peaceful transfer of power taking place. Part of that was seeing the democratic process, you know, come through when we asked 
for specific answers to that question. We also know that more Americans are aware of what anti-Semitism is, what that word means, and they were even a year ago. You know, that's a starting point, you know, breaking through that ignorance, educating Americans, like what's happening. That's a reason to hope. There are more resources now available to fighting anti-Semitism. We had the passes of the Jabara Hire No Hate Act last year, and those resources will begin to be made available for law enforcement agencies to help close the reporting, the hate crimes gaps, the reporting gaps, and we can be able to have more resources to actively reporting anti Semitic, but also other hate crimes in America. And I could go on for reasons to hope, but maybe three things that our listeners can do. One is knowing how anti-Semitism functions differently than other forms of bigotry. We, we noted the conspiratorial element, the scapegoating, the, you know, really the need to blame someone else, to put problems on someone else. That really is all rooted in anti-Semitism. So we really need to unpack that, understand that. And AJC has resources for that, such as Translate Hate, um, even the IRA working definition talks about the ways that anti-Semitism can be different than other forms of hate as well. The second thing to do is really to continue to decry political violence. There was a study that just came out last week, actually, that showed that one in three Americans believe that violence against the government can be justified. This is frightening, to be honest. Just in the 1990s, 90% of Americans believed it was never justified. So just in the past few decades, we're seeing that number drop to 60% of people now thinking that it's never justified. And so that's the beginning of something we really need to make sure that we stay away from. We say political violence is never justified because when it is, that really is when we've seen democracies crumble. And then I think the last thing is to really share what's at stake, to know that many people still look to the United States as a model of democracy, of transparency, of good governments to witness the peaceful transfer of power. And you know, we are one of the oldest experiments in democratic self-government. And I think to serve as that model, we need to make sure that we are active citizens. It's not a passive responsibility we have as citizens just to sit back and, and let it happen, um, but really to engage. And that's something that AJC does every day. Thank you, Holly. And Rebecca, any final words of hope? I'm seeing a lot of people who never before really talked about their Judaism, really talked about anti-Semitism, are at the forefront of it. They're out. They are. They're talking to their friends. They're talking on social media. They're learning more about the issues so that they can better arm themselves. I know we at AJC are having meetings across the country with national and local elected officials to talk about anti-Semitism, to talk about hate crimes and what we can do. We're bringing our partner groups together um, and what we can all do together to live in a better society without anti-Semitism, without hate. And I think that uh, these conversations are hard, but they're really, really important. And I, I'm very hopeful. I think it's unfortunate that we're having to have these conversations. But, you know, to, to Holly's point from earlier, this is sort of how we affect change. This is a really pivotal moment, I think, in our days. And I'll say, what can we do? What can we all collectively do? I think we all have a responsibility to track down the facts. Whatever you're hearing, whether it's from a friend or whether it's online, make sure it's credible. Make sure that when you're somebody citing a poll or a survey, that it's a real actual survey, not just something that somebody is, you know, sort of citing statistics and then we're repeating it, right? I think part of the problem out there is we're all just sort of parroting other people's talking points. Make sure the talking points you are using are actual real facts that you've researched yourself. I think that's just really important. If you have any questions, you can always come to AJC. You can always come to us as a resource. I want to encourage everybody to keep doing what you're doing. I feel really hopeful. I think that there's a lot of people out there really on the line, you know, speaking out on behalf of our community. Holly and Rebecca, thank you both so much for this really important conversation today. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining me is guest host, Melanie Pell. Happy New Year, Melanie. Happy New Year, Manya. 
I have to admit, though, I keep forgetting to say that to people because it just doesn't feel new to me. Do you share that vibe? Absolutely. We've been in a sort of an endless uh, loop, (laughs) (laughs) an endless COVID loop of being in our homes and seeing our families and um, trying to stay healthy. So yes, but Happy New Year nonetheless. Well, thank you. I have to say, I'm really pushing my family, at least myself and my kids. My husband doesn't really believe in New Year's resolutions, but I'm kind of with him this year, but I'm really pushing myself to make those resolutions, even though I don't feel compelled to make promises that I don't know whether I can keep them or not, given all the uncertainty. How do you approach resolutions this year? So my thinking this year is one about really getting back to basics and trying to remember and remind myself what is important, what matters. And so I'm thinking about things like, how do I make sure I am focused on my family appropriately, putting down my phone, making sure (laughs) I am, you know, as healthy as I can be, trying to be present. You know, it feels like I want to remind myself about what is really ultimately important and really focus on the basics. Not being too ambitious, in other words. Not being too ambitious and, you know, thinking about, gosh, I didn't, I probably didn't read enough last year. Like, I need to read more. (laughs) You know, again, like, what is restorative? In a time when so much around us feels, there is still so much uncertainty, there is still so much anxiety, there is still so much that feels like it's just swirling around out of our control, What can we control that will make us feel healthy, will make us feel restored, and will make us feel at peace with with where we are, maybe just for that moment or that day? You raise a really good point. I'd like to joke about the one year that I made a resolution I had no trouble keeping, and that was when I was single in my 30s, and I pledged to have a martini every Monday. (laughs) I pledged to observe Martini Monday every week of that year. And I did. I had at least 52 martinis. It was very easy to, uh, (laughs) a very easy one to keep. Very accomplished. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) But really what it accomplished was I invited a friend, you know, to have a drink with me every week. It got me out the door as an introvert. That is an accomplishment. And it really, it reconnected me with people. And I think that is going to be a big theme for this year is to reconnect with friends and family and yeah, reprioritize, right? That's what this pandemic did for us. It helped us reprioritize and remember what really matters. And I think that that is a a good way to approach every year, whether you do it with a martini in your hand or not. One of the things that I am trying to be more mindful of is making sure I don't take things for granted. I do not want to take for granted things like the incredible power of our democracy, peaceful transitions of power. Here we are, you know, at the anniversary of January 6th, where every foundation really felt unsteady and unstable and uncertain. Let's not take for granted the fragility and the power of our democracy. Let's not take for granted how special it is to be a Jew living in 2022 in the United States. Let's not take for granted that we can call on our leaders to speak out against things like anti-Semitism and hatred, that we can hold them accountable. Let's not take for granted that we have access to vote and that we have that power. As we think about going back to basics, 
for me, some of that is also really trying to focus on what we have and what we cannot and must not ever take for granted. Absolutely. You know, on my Facebook feed, reminders of the rally against anti-Semitism popped up from two years ago when we marched across the Brooklyn Bridge and pictures of me and my daughter and my sister-in-law and colleagues here at AJC together, arm in arm, and marching. It was really a nice reminder of what it feels like to be in a community and what it feels like to embrace your Judaism and be proud of it. And as you said, Melanie, call on our leaders and hold them accountable for protecting everyone here that lives in America. And so you raise a very good point. We cannot take those things for granted because we certainly haven't been able to do them for about two years. (laughs) (laughs) For sure, for sure. Happy New Year and Shabbat Shalom, Melanie. Thank you. Happy New Year and Shabbat Shalom. In case you missed it, be sure to tune in to our final episode of last year, my conversation with comedian Alex Edelman about that time he crashed a meeting of white nationalists and how that led to his off-Broadway hit, Just For Us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.